Hey guys, Cable here, and this week's podcast is proudly brought to you by Pyro Putty. This is a product that uh, I'm very excited about as far as reinventing the wheel when it comes to fire starting technology. You can get Pyro Putty wet, it's still going to light. You can attach it to a wet log, it's going to burn long enough to start a fire on that wet wood. So when it comes to boosting morale in the backcountry, what, what is better than a a warm fire, right? There's nothing. You get home from a long day, back to camp. You've been chasing elk through the mountains or mule deer or whatever for you know, from sun up to sundown. You're cold and you're wet, and you can't get a fire started. Not because you don't have a fire starter, but because that fire starter doesn't do the job. Pyro Putty does, and you can find it at pyroputty.com. It's a size of about a can of dip. That's all it is. And inside that can of dip, you got a seven hour burn time. You put a, a piece the size of a nickel on a stick, and it's going to burn for 8 to 10 minutes. It's Pyro Putty. You need it in your backcountry kit. It's going to boost morale. Could save your life. You never know. Uh, but you can find it at PyroPutty.com. I started drinking much too early. It led me astray. It doesn't matter. If I was 13, or it was 10 o'clock today, it's just the good same. Good morning, good morning, good morning. A little Mark David Manders kicking things off for us right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be talking hunting fishing the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks each week uh, so thanks for dropping by i tell you what it has been hotter than hell this week and i've got chores galore at two deer leases i've got feeders to fill i need to repair one uh, that the hogs knocked over those sorry sobs i need to hang tree stands got a lot to do but it's been so damn hot i just haven't wanted to go outside <laughs> so uh been shooting my bow a lot this week uh at about 8 30 <laughs> When the temperature drops to 90 degrees uh, from, I think the heat index one day this week was 110. Are you kidding me? Uh, nobody wants to be out in that. Uh, so truly, this is the dog days of summer. We're living in it right now. Uh, maybe go out, wet a line, early morning. Oh, I went noodling last week. That is one thing I did do. Went catfish noodling for the first time and got bit by a 45-pound flathead. I tell you what, that is an adrenaline rush right there. Uh, once these scabs on my arm heal, <laughs> you can see pictures of them on my social media outlets, but, uh, I'm going to go do it again. That was a blast. So, uh, thanks to the rut and strut outdoors guys, Josh, Justin, and Brady, uh, for taking me out and we'll have them on an upcoming podcast to talk all things noodling. Cause it's one of those things that unless you've done it a bunch, uh, you really don't know what the hell you're doing. So I was, uh, fortunate enough to tag along with them and, uh, provide them with some humor as I struggled through my first noodling adventure. Uh, so, anyway, look forward to that on an upcoming show. What's going on this week, though? Let me tell you. You know what to do by now. Pull up a stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos. Yep, that green Stanley that Granddad passed down to you years ago. And get ready to rock and roll because we've got a special guest today making his return to the program. My good friend, Ivan Carter. Uh, professional hunter who truly has made conservation his life's work here over the last decade or so and 
he is the authority. There's no doubt about that on big game conservation when it comes to Africa. And we've got a ton to get into uh, topics like um, poaching as a business, lion reintroduction into the Zambezi Delta in Mozambique. Is trophy hunting a viable population management tool? I think there's uh, some misconceptions on that front. So we'll take a look at Botswana's situation uh, regarding their elephant herd as well. Uh, and then one other thing I, that I saw that was very disturbing slash interesting, poachers lacing animals that they've killed with poison. Now, why would they do that? Ivan will break that down for us as well. So lots of cool stuff coming up with Ivan. And Ivan, for me, is one of those people that, you know, when he speaks, I listen attentively because I always learn something. And he might not be as eloquent as, say, Shane Mahoney, who I always say I want to uh, read me hunting stories at bedtime, fall asleep to his soothing voice. Uh, but no, Ivan is uh, well-versed on all things conservation and these topics that I've outlined for you here today. So I'm certainly excited to have him back on, and uh, we'll do that momentarily. First, though, let's do a, uh, a quick giveaway. I've got a Lone Star Ag Credit shotgun case. It's a soft case. It's got their logo on it and a Lone Star Ag Credit cap. So let's just do, uh, what's a good word for today? How about poacher, right? Because we're going to be talking a little poaching. Um, so email the word poacher to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. And we'll get you entered into this week's Lone Star Ag Credit giveaway. Um, also, don't forget, send in those monthly outdoor photos. It could be hunting, fishing, whatever you choose, landscapes. Just email them to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com to enter our monthly photo contest. And then our 12 monthly winners at the end of the year will square off for our Photo of the Year Grand Prize Hunt package, which we are offering up. Uh, you'll be able to hunt, well, the winner will be able to hunt trophy black buck or axis deer with me down at coons canyon ranch in rock springs texas so another great grand prize hunt package from coons canyon ranch let's take a quick break we've got so much to get into today professional hunter and conservationist ivan carter joins us next on the lone star outdoor show no to keep us apart Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro counties. Three Crow does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys, and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to 3curl.com or call 214-641-8097 today. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffair for Hoffair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years' experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. 
Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. Then I noticed the stranger was ghost white tail when he asked me for a light. And I knew there was something strange about this ride. He said, Drifter, can you make folks cry when you play insane? Have you paid your dues? Can you moan the blues? Can you bend down guitar? There's a classic from David Allen Coe by request, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you so much for dropping by. I certainly appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well, our longtime presenting sponsors. As we're all set to jump into some serious conservation discussion here today with the face of African big game conservation. Well, actually, <laughs> the face of African conservation by and large uh, across the board. And it wasn't always like that for Ivan Carter. Um, in a career spanning uh, three decades as a professional hunter, things have changed for him. He's, he's picked up the torch and is now leading the charge as far as conserving Africa species and helping people across the globe, uh, hunters in America and natives in Africa, understand the importance of keeping these animals around. Uh, it sounds a lot easier said than done and we've got a myriad of topics to get into from the poisoning of elephants to what's going on with lion reintroduction in certain areas all that good stuff Um, but first this segment brought to you by dallas safari club the worldwide leader in big game conservation ivan is a proud member as am i and i know i can speak for ivan uh, when i say there's no other organization that does more as far as putting their money where their mouth is, than Dallas Safari Club when it comes to conservation. So if you want to join this group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and, of course, conservation, check us out at biggame.org. We'd love to have you. Uh, with that being said, let's bring him on right now, uh, one of our oldest friends and someone who I truly respect as a conservationist and big game hunter. It's my pleasure to welcome Ivan Carter back to the show. Hey, well, Cable, thank you so much, man. It's it's great to be on the show and looking forward to today's discussion. Me too, my friend. Me too. So the uh, first thing I want to ask you, though, is have you been able to do much hunting in 2019? Or any at all, for that you matter? You know, unfortunately, Cable, <laughs> I've had my, my hands so tied with, with all of the projects. Everything's, everything's truly thriving, and it's keeping me really, really busy. A few days in Mozambique, um, when we went in there to, to check and recollar the lions, um, I managed to get a few days in there. We, we stalked around through the forest for a blue diker and um, spent a bunch of time on the floodplain. But other than that, been kind of go, go, go on the, on the, the conservation stuff. So Yeah. Well, I, and I know your career took a sharp turn in recent years as you've really become the face of big game conservation through sustainable use hunting and proliferating that message in Africa. Um, do you miss the hunting aspect of it, Ivan? You know, one of the great things, Cable, is that a lot of the areas that we work in are actually hunting areas. A lot of those areas are, are places where you're surrounded by hunting, you're surrounded by the culture, the pursuit. And so I do actually end up at the end of each year having spent 20 to 50 days of, of guiding and, and, and hunting. And I always make sure I get a, get a few days of shooting and, and, you know, taking my kids in the field 
seeing them start to shoot with their BB guns and 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 22s and 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 smaller firearms. Uh, you know, having hunted avidly for about 30 years, um, somebody asked me the other day, "How many hunting days have you guided?" And I don't know the answer to that, but it's probably an excess of 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 you know four or five or six thousand days. And so, you know, really, it's a very familiar, very friendly environment that one's working in. And you're surrounded by the whole culture, which I think makes it a, a lot easier. It's not like you've broken away into another career. If you know. Right. Right. It's not like you went cold turkey. I'm quitting hunting. Right. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, there's still that excitement in, in the mornings when you get ready to go for a buffalo or, or, or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, I think that if you lose that, um, you know, it, it's, it's a very sad day. And so, yeah, de- definitely enjoy being around it, enjoy guiding it, enjoy doing it. And it's certainly not a, I don't feel like I've, in inverted commas, given it up per se. Sure, sure. Um, It's just become a lesser part of my life, you know. Well, you know, somebody has to do what you're doing. So uh, I think all hunters appreciate clearly the efforts that uh, you're making and really carrying the torch for all of us um, in Africa. And, and, you know, something that I've never asked you, though, um, I I did a rhino vita dart uh, two weeks ago with John X Safaris and and this was a kind yeah. of something that really tugged at me internally, like whether we were exploiting this animal, this species, or whether it was really necessary. Um, but after kind of finding out the numbers, researching that a little bit on, on how many rhinos are left in, in Africa and, and where they are, um, I walked away from it thinking, well, if people don't pay to do this, have these kinds of experiences, whether that's through vita darting or through hunting a rhino, uh, I don't really see much... Uh, of a future forum from funding anti-poaching and then all that stuff. So um, I don't know. What, what is your thought, your thought on that? So it's, that's a really interesting question, Cable, because the Vita Dart deal is always, a, a, I want to say, a bone of contention that's always got some spirited discussion around it. At the end of the day, the bottom line is it's a way that an owner of a, of a species can utilize that species to get some money to help pay his bill to protect that species. Mm-hmm. And that is literally absolutely where I stand on it. Any time that you can ethically and sustainably use a wildlife population or an individual animal um, to generate the money that it requires to propagate and protect that animal, I think it's a good thing, as long as it's ethical and as long as it's sustainable. So at the end of the day, um, you know, it's a, it's a way to utilize the rhino population, and I think that you know, at the end of the day, it's a it's a good substitute. Um, but I think that it's just got to be presented well, and I think we run the risk of not presenting that well when we're in the non-hunting public eye. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very important that we're very careful how we present these kind of exploits because absolutely we are utilizing the animal. Absolutely, that animal is privately owned, and by virtue of being able to be utilized and generate some money, it stimulates further ownership, and I think that that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, However, it's not something that is very easy to explain to your anti-hunting public. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. And and pretty much the things that you described um, were kind of – that was my my inhibitions about the experience going into it. Uh, walking away from it, uh, kind of land exactly, uh, you know, kind of what you said there. Um, they, you know, if if we can protect them on private land, great. I want to be a part of that uh, because it's <laughs> the value of 
both elephants and rhinos on the black market is, you know, it's it's a battle that uh, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but um, it's unfortunate. And, I, and, I, and I, it was sad. It was a sad experience for me putting my hands on that rhino as he's laboring to breathe after we've darted him. And I'm thinking, man, this this is unfortunate that, that it's come to this, you know? And so you know, one of the things that we've done, which is um, I suppose a little bit similar to the Vitanot, except that, you know, one is not a, only a qualified vet is allowed to dart a rhino to put it to sleep mm-hmm. just because of handling the drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the things that we've started to do is to present these experiences where, you know, it might be the capture and move of a giraffe population to reestablish uh, the species somewhere where it's, it's formerly extinct. It might be the darting of a population of rhinos to notch their ears in a wild area of Zimbabwe or, or, or somewhere, somewhere else. It might be the darting and collaring of lions um, for conservation. What we've started to do, Cable, is to, to have folks come along, support financially the initiative, which is important, and then also come and, and observe what's actually happening. And so that way, you're satisfying two or three different boxes there. Number one, you're getting the financial ability to do your very much needed conservation work. Number two, your donor or your philanthropic com- community is getting this world-class experience where they, they get to see and put their hands on the effects of their funding. And number three, you've got this this model which is is self-sustaining where you know within the spreadsheet and very openly there's always a line item for the protection of that animal Uh so you're not just asking someone to buy for buy collars you're saying okay here's what the expense of this initiative is it's the collars it's the vet it's the helicopter but then there's also you know whatever it might be uh, an amount that's put in there for the protection or the research ongoing or whatever it is that sustainably maintains this foundation upon which that animal can thrive. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really, really good model cable. We've, we've, we've done four or five trips like this so far. I mean, we had a family from Houston, um, Lewis and Peggy Metzger, that um, two years ago reestablished a giraffe population in Uganda. Mm. And, you know, their family foundation forever is going to be the responsible party that put giraffes back into a place where they were formerly extinct. Oh, that is cool. a giant deal and a huge return on your conservation investment. And so, you know, you look at the Cabela Family Foundation with the lion move. They take ownership of the fact that right now today, lions roar in the Zambezi Delta area. And, uh, you know, that, that wasn't something that happened. You know, two years ago, you wouldn't have heard a peep tonight. You know, you're going to stand on the edge of the floodplain, and you're going to hear lions. So, and I, I was reading. Um, obviously, you're very involved with that, and that was what a couple dozen lions. So, what we did is, um, is cable. We we we've been watching that ecosystem for several years. Mark Haldane and his crew at Zambezi Delta Safaris has, um, you know, they they've done an amazing job of of anti poaching, and so the the foundational wildlife, the prey species, if you will have grown at about 3,000%. And so what we did is we went in there and we said, okay, based on what other people have done, based on you know, the other models where people have tried to reintroduce lions, um, what is going to be a good number that if you lose a male, it's, it's inconsequential to the overall project. 
if you lose a female, whatever. So, uh-huh. so we decided to put 24 lions in there. And the reason for that number, it was 18 females and six males, is just from a foundational population perspective, it gives you a really nice broad diversity of genetics, as well as the fact that it gives you, gives you some, some buffer should, should, should any one or, or, or any group have a problem. It doesn't eliminate the whole project. Well, and those are clearly expensive undertakings, but again, uh, examples of hunters putting their money where their mouths are when it comes to conservation. Uh, Ivan, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to I want to ask you why the lions went extinct in that region, and uh, that should segue us into our next topic of discussion quite nicely. So, uh, y'all stick around. We will be right back with more from Ivan Carter. And that segment, by the way, was proudly brought to you by the new Vortex. Razor HD 4000 Rangefinder. You all need to check this bad boy out. It is the latest and greatest in Vortex lineup of laser rangefinders. I took mine with me to uh, South Africa back in June. Was very impressed with its performance, and I know you will be as well. Check it out. It's the Razor HD 4000, and you can find it at VortexOptics.com. We'll be right back with more conservation discussion right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Hickory smoke above and an old dog on the floor. A piece of chalk on a black slate tabletop for keeping score. Old friends and stories of places and the ones they love. That's the music of Matt Hillier. These old bones can talk. Bringing us back on the Lone Star. Outdoor show powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you today. Thank you so much for being here. I certainly appreciate it. We are smack dab in the middle of a uh, in-depth conservation discussion with the face of big game conservation on the dark continent, uh, our good friend Ivan Carter. And we're going to jump back into things here momentarily with Ivan. Uh, but first, this segment of the show, proudly brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. Whether it's African big game or a speckled trout from the Texas coast or anything in between, Rustic Reminders handles all of my trophy mounts. They've been doing it for seven, eight years, maybe longer. Uh, it's been a long time. <laughs> but Josh and Becky do amazing work. They answer the phone when you call, and they offer 
quick turnaround time. And I'm talking like three to six months for a whitetail mount. Uh, that sure beats a year and a half, right? Check them out. GR8Mounts.com. That's GR8Mounts.com. Okay, well, Ivan, uh, certainly appreciate you sticking around. We were talking about the lion reintroduction project that took place in Mozambique's storied Zambezi Delta region. And so you were very involved with that project, Ivan. And, you know, it was largely financed by the Cabela family. Uh, so, and so let's start with this. I think it's the most obvious question and, and one that uh, you can expand on for us with your answer. But uh, why did the lions initially go extinct in the Zambezi Delta? You know, it's a region where they had thrived for centuries upon centuries. So it's a, it's a very simple formula, um, Cable, is, you know, Mozambique had 30 years of civil war. During that war, the infrastructure really took an incredible dive. And without infrastructure, you know, the people had no means to, to literally feed themselves and, and, you know, everything kind of fell apart. Mm -hmm. And so the, they started, chronic poaching started happening in any of the wildlife strongholds in Mozambique. And with that chronic poaching, obviously, there's a bycatch element, which is the apex predators. One of the ways that they would poach is they would build these kind of fences of brush that would go for sometimes two or three miles. And wherever there was a gap in the fence, they would have a, a, a snare or a trap mm -hmm. so that the animals that would be walking along would come to the fence. They'd walk down the fence looking for a gap, and there were probably a, a gap every 50 yards, and they'd walk through the gap and get caught in the trap. A pride of lions would either smell the dead animal or hear the caught animal come and have a look. One of the things that lions always do is they circle around first just to make sure that everything's safe. And of course, they'd get to this fence and they'd look for a gap in the fence and walk right into the trap. Mm -hmm. And so the lions weren't intentionally eliminated. But as, as the, this chronic poaching epidemic started, you know, one of the terrible things about poaching with, with traps is they're indiscriminate. Yeah. And so whatever animal walks into that thing is going to die. And so I think that it was just a, a matter of, of bycatch. And so before we even put the lions into the area cable, it would have been very irresponsible to do so without the right science and research behind it. So we spent a couple of years um, with, with a scientist living in the area. So cable, one of the, the most important things with any move are the big three questions. So question number one did the species, in this case lions, mm -hmm. used to occur in the area? And so that is, that is a very important question because if you're going to introduce an animal into an area where it never used to occur, now we knew what that question was and we knew that it was a resounding yes. The next question to ask is what eliminated the animal? Now, here say an anecdotal round the fireside chat is not enough. You've really got to dive in. And so we spent a lot of time interviewing elders. Well, our scientists did. We spent a lot of time going through kind of, kind of trying to figure out exactly what eliminated these lions. And what we discovered was it was this, this poaching epidemic. And then the third and probably the most important of the three questions is, is the ecosystem and the, the environment sufficient today to reintroduce lions. And so it was a resounding yes for a couple of reasons. One is the anti-poaching has, has eliminated the poaching to the degree that we knew the lions would be safe. Number two, the prey species base was plenty sufficient to support a new population of lions. And number three, 
we had the budget and the willingness of the donor community to support the 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 research and continued protection of them. So mm. so yeah, it was a resounding yes from 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 the, the the perspective of whether it was good enough to put them back and whether we could and we should. And so then we got to work. Hmm. Well, you know, in those three questions, you know, when you're reintroducing any species, it's it's uh, transcends to say here for, you know, in Texas, um, two things that come to mind, the, the eastern turkey we've put back into the eastern part of the state and also the desert bighorn sheep. Yes. I mean, we have spent, Absolutely. And, and that's a project Dallas Safari Club is very involved in as well. Um, but, you yes. know, Texas Parks and Wildlife and other private organizations have spent a lot of time and money on those desert bighorns, and, and they're doing quite well as a result. No, for sure. For yeah. sure, Cable. And, you know, when you look at it, man has the ability to eliminate or push every single species to the brink of extinction. Mm-hmm. But the right man has also got the ability to bring it back. And I think this is exactly what you see with, with these conservation initiatives, is that very often we've done things historically with unintended consequences on our wildlife. And now that we're focused on wildlife, we, we're in a movement where people are aware of, of, of wild things and wild spaces. Um, we truly are able to bring some of these iconic species back. And it's amazing what follows them. So, you know, you think of a mountain with or without desert bighorn, um, you know, it, it doesn't appear to be a very impactful species. But I think that in time, as those populations start to 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 grow and thrive and reach their maximum, there's all kinds of effects that add to the balance of what that area historically was. Mm-hmm. No doubt. As someone who's started to dip my toe in, in, in hunting and experiencing Africa, having gone each of the past three years, uh, it's something that, you know, my passion just grows uh, exponentially for. And I, like I said, I got to experience this rhino vita dart. Um, and it, and it, it really was, walking away from it, like I said, uh, very cool to be up close and personal. And while not taking the rhino's life, it was still, uh, I would say, in, in, in my hunting exploits, the moment in time where I was the most scared when, when that rhino, after I darted it, um, Carl was very clear. He's like, be really still after you shoot it. And my initial reaction once I shot it and he looked towards us was to like move. And I think he picked up on that and he's, he, they started running right at us. Uh, that was probably the most uh, fearful I've been, <laughs> you know, in a hunting situation. What is yours in a lifetime of hunting dangerous game? What is that one moment? Or maybe there's a couple of them where you were like, oh, S, this is not good. You know, I think that that cable you, humans have this weird ability of, you know, all of the bad stuff kind of gets gets drifts into your distant memory, and all of the good stuff stays in the front. I don't know how that happens, um, <laughs> but but we just seem to forget the bad stuff. But yeah, I've had a few very very close shaves with elephant. Um, I, I I spent a lot of my youth hunting elephant cows in very thick brush in in Zimbabwe. And that is absolutely not for the faint-hearted. And there were several moments there where, you know, you look around, you you you, you kind of trying to look after a couple of trackers, um, some some other folks, a, a cameraman, uh, a hunter, and and you look around you and you just realise that holy moly, these guys are completely relying on me to handle this situation, mm-hmm. and I've got to try and get out of here w- without killing the animal without, you know, and back out of the scenario, keeping everybody safe. And absolutely, it, it's as, 
you are as tense and as wide awake as any other thing in your life. But at the same time, I also think that that is something uh, uh, of the allure that brings one back to Africa is the fact that it's not all pre-curated. It's not all safe. It does have an element of excitement when you're out and you're you miles away from the truck and you've been on the tracks of whatever species for however long. Um, you are part of that ecosystem. And, and I think that that's a big part of what brings us back time and again. And, and Africa's amazing like that. There, there's, there's this twinge of fear on the back of your neck when you, when you are in pursuit of something that can and will kill you. But at the same time, um, there, there's also this feeling of really being part of this whole cycle of life as you track for hours. And, and, and you can often in some of these big areas, once you've away from the car for a few hours, you can wonder if anybody's ever walked along the elephant path that you're walking on. I mean, that's, that to me is one of the, the greatest things of all time. And, and to be honest, Cable, one of the things that's my greatest concern is, you know, this abandonment of hunting areas. So in Tanzania, you know, as they, they closed the imports of lion into, mm -hmm. into North America, um, you know, all of a sudden the business model for a lot of the hunting outfit has stopped working. And so they literally handed their concessions back to government. And today there's, there's literally tens of millions of acres that government is considering resettling with people just because the hunting model has collapsed. And, you know, it, it really, if you take an aerial photo of New York or San Francisco or Chicago or Miami, and that is where the people live that are anti-lion hunting, and you look around there and you wonder how have they taken care of their land? You know, they're living on an island in Manhattan full of high-rise buildings where not a single natural thing is, exists or is allowed to exist. And yet they have all of the opinions and the weight of say in how wildlife and wild areas are managed. And, and there's this big disconnect cable. And so absolutely. I mean, I'm sorry I went down that rabbit hole. That's okay. But, um, you know, the, the reality is you are absolutely right. There are moments in Africa where you truly are frightened. And in a really weird way, those are the moments that keep you coming back. I really believe that. Well, and, and like I said, that was the most fearful I've ever been. And it's not like, I, I don't even think that the, uh, the pH took his, I don't know what caliber he had. I'm sure it was something in the fours, but I don't think he even took it off his shoulder. We kind of went one way around the bush and the rhino went the other way. It was like a bullfight, you know, how you kind of ole the bull. And, and, uh, but for me, you know, I was like, Oh my God, that kind of got a little hairy and, and I liked it in a sick twisted way. You know, I, I yep. absolutely want that adrenaline rush again. And maybe that's why humans skydive or evil Knievel and, and these modern day BMX bikers hurl themselves into the air, 200, 300 feet. It's, uh, it's, it's inherent whether you do it through big game hunting or you, you know, do it through, through the crazy things like that. We like adventure and we like adrenaline. It's just uh, part of our nature. And I think, Cable, what, what ends up happening is in today's world, we live in such a carefully curated uh, set of behaviors. You know, if you live in a big city, you, you know, you, you're mad if your food doesn't come on time, if your car doesn't arrive on time, if the elevator's a bit slow, everything is pre-planned, pre-curated. And so it, we, we've a limit, we, we work very hard to eliminate anything that's not expected. And so when something unexpected happens, we very often don't handle it well. And I think that that is one of the lures of Africa. 
is everything is unexpected. You never know what's around the next corner. Mm-hmm. You never know what animal you're going to see next or what your day is going to be. When you head out of camp as the sun's coming up and you, it, it, the, the cold is biting at the back of your neck, truly, Cable, you don't know what's going to happen between the, then and the next time you drive back into that camp. You really don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. No. I mean, the fr- it's, it's cliche, but you take what Africa gives you and you might go out for kudu and come back with a zebra or a springbok or, you know, red hartebeest. You never know. It's and, you a- know, Cable, that, that's also one of the things, you know, with this whole lion move, getting back to that for a second, the Cabela Family Foundation, um, you know, they're, they're an amazing pioneering family. When you think that entire empire was built because Dick Cabela wanted to tie some flies and, and supplement his income, you know, and this was a very much a pioneering deal. No one had ever attempted anything this big. No one had attempted to move 24 lions in different aircraft, you know, across an international boundary into a wildlife area where they were extinct. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a talk about not knowing what you're heading into. Um, you know, that that was an amazing, amazing deal. And, you know, as we look back today, I still can't tell you what's going to happen in the next six months. Uh, we've got our projections and we've got our got our ideas. But, you know, we just came out that we put very young lions in the area just just on the brink of, of starting to breed. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is we didn't want to spend all of this time and resources introducing lions that that only had half of their lifetime of breeding. So they've all just started breeding. We've got five lionesses that have produced 16 cubs for us, which is an incredible milestone cable. I mean, that just that that's really, really significant. Mm. Um, and, you know, when you look at it, the, those lions, they still had some growing to do. So we, we went to there just, just 10 days ago and darted them all and put re, reattached, you, you know, enlarged their collars, put new collars on. And um, we have four pregnant females. We have these five that have, that have got cubs. And so who knows what I'm going to be telling you on your next show in six <laughs> months' time. Um, about what the population's doing. And here's the great, great part of it is cable. We haven't had one single bad human lion interaction. We, we've, we've seen the lions doing exactly what we had hoped and what the biologists told us they would do. In other words, living on the floodplain and, 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 and eating the, the, the most common species, i.e. the waterbuck and waterbuck. And so really when you look at it, when people say, what is the good that hunters really do? Without hunters and without the hunting model, that area would still have been completely devoid of wildlife as it was in 1995 when Mark Haldane and his team took over. But now you look at it at this truly thriving ecosystem. The apex predator has been reintroduced. It's truly thriving there. The elephant populations have stabilized. And, you know, every bit of that, if you say, well, you know, what is the reason that all of this is happening? It's really anti-poaching. So let's step back one step from that. Well, who pays for that? Well, a proportion of every single dollar that's raised through the hunting model goes into that. And then our foundation, the Ivan Carter Wildlife Conservation Alliance, we, we support it very, very heavily just because it's this amazing ray of hope of, of what can happen. So when you look at a wild ecosystem and you go, wow, that place has been poached out. There's no hope. No way. There's lots of hope, lots and lots of hope. And, and what we hope to do is to bring this blueprint so that anybody that's got an ecosystem that's in any way similar can take the blueprint of what's been achieved in Qatar 11 
apply it and in 10 years' time have a thriving, mm-hmm. uh, a, a thriving population of wildlife across the board. Well, and it's it's a shame that, like you've referenced, Tanzania, and I've been keeping up with what's going on there. Um, but like hunters are like the Cabela is obviously reintroducing lions there in the Zambezi Delta. Well, hunters were doing a fine job in Tanzania, and now, like you said, what is the government going to do? The government doesn't, and that's what people don't understand, Ivan. The government doesn't want the uh, the cash drain of of having all of this property that they can't do anything with you know it's it's a burden to them and especially in a third world country my ph carl van Ziel the other day he said you got to understand the people of south africa by and large especially the poor they don't give a crap about rhinos they, and, and rhinos don't have a vote so politicians don't give a crap about them either you know the only people that care about them are are, are hunters and conservationists and you know here's one of the things that i think we we must cable is Really, if you look at it, if we're talking about big tracts of land, there's very few land uses. There's mining if there's minerals there. Mm-hmm. There's wildlife use, which can be both photographic and hunting, or if you want to call it consumptive and non-consumptive use. Then there's logging. Then there's literally farming. And that's about all you can use land for. And so there's a very good example of a property that was adjoining Kruger National Park where a large syndicate of guys got this property and they, they started to put the hunting model in it. Well, the anti-hunters got on them so badly, they said, you know what, we don't want to fight this fight. We're not going to do it. So guess what that property has on it today? Mm. A citrus farm. Mm-hmm. So the wildlife lost. They, they took all of the wildlife off it and they planted citrus. They, they, they cleared giant tracts of land and they planted orange trees and so, whoopity woo, here we go. The anti-hunters won. Good job, guy. <laughs> you know, now you've got a, you know, a few thousand acres of citrus farm with not a single wild animal just because you didn't want the wild population to be sustainably harvested. Mm-hmm. And so, really, when you look at it, I think we've got, to, we've got to start talking about resources and resource use. If we don't look at wildlife as a resource, it will go away. And so if you are anti-hunting, you're actually anti-resource use. So as you drive your car along the highway, consider where the plastic of the dashboard came, the rubber for the tires, the metal, and consider what you're burning in your gas tank as you drive to your anti-hunting convention, (laughs) as you fly to your anti-hunting convention. And you sit at your convention around a wooden table that was possibly a hardwood harvested from some forest somewhere. And so everybody on this planet utilizes resources. Unless you you live naked in a forest and eat dead leaves, you do have impact. (laughs) That's the news. And so there's no such thing as someone having more impact than another. So you, you hear these stories, well, we've recovered a hunting area to photographic. At what cost to the water resource? Well, water's not that important. Well, bulldust, of course it's important. Water is the most valuable resource on the planet right now. Mm-hmm. There's more people that don't have clean water right now than ever in history. And so you've put an 18-bed lodge in a place where there used to be a, a one-bed hunting lodge at an enormous cost to that ecosystem in the utilization of resources. And I'm not saying it should be one or the other. I'm just saying if we're going to talk about utilizing a resource, we need to talk about everything from trees to the very ground. I mean, a, a, a road network, uh, the fuel. I mean, 
having having a big lodge in one of those places where the the lodge owners will very often say, well, our service is so good, we've got three staff for every guest, and it's a sixty bed lodge. So suddenly you are housing, you know, hundreds of people that all require food, that all generate trash, that all generate sewage, that all use water. At what cost to the resources? And just because it's not a giraffe or an elephant that you can physically see, because it's water and it's fuel and it's sewage production and so on, it's invisible, but it's still got an absolutely profound impact on on, on the ecosystem. And so I'm not anti anti non-hunting activities. I'm not anti any of this. What I am is pro balance. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've got to look at balance and we've got to look at at sustainable use with a real strong what is sustainable use? So does a photographic outfitter that's got, you know, fifteen thousand acres and, you know, five hundred people a month going through that, is that sustainable? What does that ecosystem look like? in 20 years time is it sustainable to pump water to the surface in front of your lodge in a place where never had surface water just so you can see animals and then within a short amount of time it's a dust bowl because the elephants have destroyed all the trees around the waterhole is that sustainable we need to ask the right question mm-hmm. if you're anti-hunting you're anti-resource use and you've only got the right to be anti-hunting if you live naked under a tree and eat dry leaves because <laughs> if not you do have impact no doubt about that. Ivan, certainly enjoying the conversation. I want to uh, table this, come back, and then get into something that I saw on your Instagram feed that I was just, uh, it was abhorrent and uh, truly disturbing as far as a new low that poachers have gone to, even for them. Uh, so are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Sure, absolutely. Perfect. And that segment was brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, they're not making any more land, but you and I both want it, right? Uh, whether that's to hunt on to fish just to get the heck out of the big city or maybe you want to run cattle uh whatever the case lone star ag credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years they'll do the same for you you can find them at lonestaragcredit.com we'll be right back with more from our good friend and conservationist ivan carter you're listening to the lone star outdoor show so wake up now let's kiss you good night yeah, the river can wait for another night. Tell me that you love me, oh, it is true. I don't want no one, baby, if I can't have you. Hey, y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Don't get me wrong, I bet we'd have a good time. I'm sure we'd really make that music prime. I'll break her heart if she don't set me don't go expecting too much of me. Gable Smith, welcome everybody back to the little old Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in today. Certainly do appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Uh, we're going to jump back into it here with our good friend, longtime professional hunter, 
and well now more of a full-time conservationist which i think all of us hunters are at our core full-time conservationists but not all of us have made it our life work like ivan has and we're going to dive back into that discussion here momentarily but first this segment proudly brought to you by all seasons feeders damn fish feeder if you're trying to grow big bass you got maybe got a stock tank full of crappie or catfish you want to keep them fat and happy then you need the damn fish feeder you put it on your damn dam and you feed your damn fish it's that easy it's the damn fish feeder you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com well let's pick it back up here with our good buddy ivan carter who joins us from mozambique uh, ivan certainly appreciate you sticking around well, absolute pleasure, Cable. I'm enjoying the discussion immensely. Ivan, I want to transition and, and get back into the poaching. Um, I saw something on your Instagram the other day that was really alarming, and, and, it, and it kind of made me think about a story I was told while I was in South Africa the other week. Uh, recently, these poachers uh, poisoned elephants that they had already poached. Well, you're going to explain to us, why they would do that. And I'm going to tell you, it's the story that I heard was that a poacher um, killed a rhino that didn't have a horn. I guess from, you know, trying to prevent poaching, they obviously sometimes they've cut the horns off these rhinos. When asked why the poacher did that, because he was apprehended, he said, so that I didn't waste time tracking that rhino again. So yep. I, I found that to be, I mean, that's abhorrent and it takes it to an all-time new low, even for someone that makes a living poaching. Uh, what I saw on your page about these elephants is in that same vein equally as disgusting. So so here's a couple of things. Let's look at poaching purely as a business. If the commodity was valueless, there would not be a business surrounding it. And so let I'll address the vulture one first. So one of the things that happens is game rangers, everybody knows, look out for vultures. And if they see vultures, they find the carcass, they find the carcass, they find the tracks, they put the hounds on the tracks, and off we go. And so if there's no vultures, the carcass doesn't get discovered. And the very best way to kill the vultures is to lace the carcass with poison. And so this has actually been going on, Cable, for about 10 years. Um, oh. A place where it's, it's most prevalent has seemed to be, you know, the northern, northwestern Botswana, Caprivi Strip, that sort of area. You know, there's huge nesting colonies of vultures there that are just sitting empty. Um, and the reality, really, when you come down to it, is that's exactly it. If you and I are in a business and there's a certain element of, of, of variable that is threatening that business, we eliminate that element. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Um, and, and so it's purely a business deal. And as, as harsh and as gross as the business is, if we don't address these kind of things, these are the kind of kind of you know the the effects on the non-target species. It's no different to the lions going extinct in Katada 11 on their quest to poach bushmeat. And so, really, what we've got to do is we have to take this very, very, very seriously and realize that it's not just elephants that are going away because they've got ivory. While those poachers are camping in the area, there's all sorts of other other terrible effects. And the same thing applies with rhinos. Imagine the risk versus reward proposition of poaching a rhino where you might get get apprehended, shot, killed in your in your quest for that horn. And even though you see that, I don't horn think I don't think Americans realize that Ivan that uh, no. when these poachers are when people come across them, sometimes there's an exchange of gunfire. And generally speaking, 
people in Africa, these anti-poaching units do not value the life of a poacher. I mean, it is a, it's a shoot first deal. So it depends what country you're um, in South Africa. You are only allowed to shoot in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and in there's other countries where poachers, there's a, there's a shoot to kill policy. So nevertheless, let's look at Africa as a whole. Mm-hmm. If you're a guy that is risking your life to track this particular animal and you risk your life to go. And the reason you're risking your life is because you might get a reward of a thousand or two thousand dollars, which is more than 10 years of income, 20 years of income for your village. And so there's a there's a big, a big drive. It's a financial push to do it. If you risk your life for five days and you come across a rhino that's been deformed, um, I mean, are you? Is it worth leaving it because you have compassion? In the case that you might risk your life for another five days for no return, of course not. And so, really, if we look at it just at a cold hard business level, it makes complete sense. And so, one of the things that that I always point out to folks is that the dehorning, for example, in the KwaZulu Natal area in in kind of central eastern South Africa has been very, very successful. But because of one thing, they dehorn all of them all the time. And so the poacher knows that there's no non-dehorned rhino on a given property. And so a property where the poachers know they've got people on the inside, they've got informants from the front line, they know exactly what's going on. And so if they know that a particular property has got some rhinos that have not been dehorned on it, they're going to carry on hunting that property. But if they know that a property has the financial wherewithal to be dehorning very regularly and that nothing has got enough horn for, for them to get a return on, they're not going to hunt there. Mm-hmm. And so, again, if we look purely at business, I don't care whether you're a if, – if, if you're a car salesman or a real estate broker, you go where the business is the best. And you avoid places where your business is super dangerous. And it's the same with poaching. We just have to look at it as a business proposition where as long as this commodity has this enormous value, there are going to be people that, I mean, there's more than than one bank is robbed every single day in North America. That's the most protected financial institution on the planet. And yet there's enough people that someone is going to risk everything for this promise of great reward. It's no different, just the fact that an animal has to die in the midst of the conversation, you know? I mean, at what level will a poacher still uh, kill a rhino for? Like, if it has two inches of horn, is that worth it to them to kill it if these things are worth a quarter of a million dollars on the black market? So uh, I'm going to throw that back cable and just say, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh-huh. Um, it may be worth a quarter of a million dollars, but not to that poacher. Right. And so at what level is that individual prepared to risk? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the same thing as any business here at Come Back to North America. You know, uh, uh, the guy who says, well, I'm quite happy just just the car. The other guy says, well, holy crap, I'm not going to do that. I want to I want to steal an airplane. Um, you know, it, it individual. And I know that I'm kind of diving into that possibly deeper than a lot of people go. But it really is just a business cable. Yeah. If rhino horn value decreased or if the demand decreased or if there was a sustainable way that people were putting horn on the market, that's probably for another discussion. Uh, I've got some very strong views and opinions that that should happen. But again, as I say, we'll leave that for another discussion. Yeah. Uh, the reality is if the rhino horn value came down or if 
the the cost of getting one is too high for the poacher, he doesn't go there. So the dogs that we took from Texas to Kruger National Park have had profound, profound success. And Cable, one of the one of the amazing things that we've seen is a reduction in the overall poaching numbers for the region that those dogs run in. Now, of course, for your average poacher, there's now a new a new security hurdle that they have to get over. I'm not saying they're stopping rhino poaching, but they're stopping rhino poaching right there. Yeah, yeah. That is awesome. And yes, we, uh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. The guy that trained the hounds, whose hounds are those? Uh, so Joe Brayman. Yeah, Joe. So Joe's been on the show and we talked about that in, in great detail um, as he was training those hounds up to, to send over to you. Uh, so that's wonderful to hear that you're having success. He's probably the premier houndsman in Texas, no doubt about that. So. Possibly in the world. And, and you know that the effect of those hounds on conservation has been so profound, Cable, that, you know, I, I think that it's a model that we are looking to expand. We've just got nine puppies, which, um, you know, we, we're starting our first satellite unit. And in fact, um, yeah, I, I think it's a very, very, very good solution. But again, you know, it's, it's not a standalone solution. It's part of an arsenal of solutions. And, you know, when I look at the, at the lions or I look at bushmeat, I look at any, any poaching proposition, you've got to look at it and you've got to say, okay, so what is the solution? So with bushmeat, people are poaching those animals to eat. Mm-hmm. If you simply say, don't poach, there's, there's no, that's never going to happen. It's like telling people don't eat. Right. <laughs> what you have to do is you have to you have to build in a four-tiered approach. Tier one is community benefit and understanding. Tier two is your actual protection. Tier three is your sustainable use of the resource to feed the community and pay for the protection. And tier four is a balanced conservation end to the whole anti-poaching. And so you can't there's not enough money in the world to just arm thousands of rangers and say, go and protect wildlife. Mm-hmm. If there's no direct benefit to the communities and there's no way that that wildlife can generate the money to pay for those rangers, it, one day someone's money's going to run out, you know? Mm. Well, and, and I get it, man. The, the system's totally broken, just like we have illegals trying to cross the border uh, from Mexico into Texas. Why wouldn't they? They want a better life. Why wouldn't a poacher risk his life to provide for his family if that's his only option? But through education... You know, and also through incentivizing folks not to poach, for instance, um, you know, providing the village with the meat, then I think we're making progress. Um, and kind of on that note, as far as education, I'm not sure if folks realize how serious of an issue we've got going on currently in Botswana regarding uh, their largest mammal. So um, are you cool to stick around and, and we'll jump into that uh, when we come back? Sure, Absolutely. Excellent. And that segment was brought to you by Pulsar's new Thermion Thermal Imaging Rifle Scope. Uh, it is a 30-millimeter tube, so you can put it on any traditional bolt-action rifle. Uh, something new for you guys and gals. It's the Thermion, and you can find it at PulsarNV.com, and you'll save 20% if you use my promo code LONESTAR when you check out at PulsarNV.com. And we'll be right back with more from Ivan Carter on the Bolt Star Outdoor Show. Roll like the rain on the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. Let the bad times roll, just let them all go. Don't like the wind blowing down the weeds from 
Hey y'all, spring is here, and that means a lot of things, but specifically, your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare. That's why I use JC's Landscaping. They do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control. New premium sod installations. Hey, you need a French drain? I had to have them put in a French drain a couple years ago. They do that too. Landscaping updates, makeovers, stone borders, patios, and much more. Serving the North Dallas and surrounding areas, you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them cable sent you. I'm finding myself now The very first time I don't have no friends here To let me there smile Sometimes I feel crazy Sometimes I feel wild But I just need to stay here Let it go for a while music of Nicholas Jamerson Bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show Powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. More importantly, thanks to you guys and gals for being here. Uh, I appreciate you dropping in this week. As we are, well, we're knee deep in conservation discussion. Uh, there's so many different issues going on across the entire world. Uh, but a lot of that attention is focused on the dark continent and what's going on with Africa's wildlife. Um, and we're going to get back into our discussion with conservationist and longtime professional hunter Ivan Carter. But first, this segment is brought to you by something that I would definitely wear in Africa if I was hunting there, which, uh, come to think of it, I just did hunt there. And I wore First Light's sawbuck pant for the duration of that hunt. And here's why. Because much like South Texas or the uh, sagebrush out west, uh, everything can cut you over there. Everything can stick you, cut you, grab you, snag you. And the sawbuck pant is made to withstand and even resist all that vegetation that you don't want to mess with. And uh, it's not only snag resistant, is what I like to call it, um, but it's tough. It keeps them from penetrating you. You know how those thorns are they are itchy. Once they poke you, then you got a little festering spot there that just itches for the rest of the day. Now, Sawbuck alleviates all that stuff, and uh, you can find it at firstlight.com. Plus, it's breathable in the front and the back, uh, which I also like. So if you're putting on miles, doing a lot of hiking, uh, it's it's really the perfect pant for those situations. You can find it at firstlight.com. Firstlight, go further, stay longer. Okay, uh, well, Ivan, let's head to Botswana. This will be the last thing we get into today, and uh, the elephant situation there is one that I've discussed in detail with DSC's executive director, Corey Mason, also uh, Richard Cheatham. And we see a situation there where their overpopulation of elephants is uh, out of control to the sum of maybe fifty to 60,000 animals too many. So they have decided to reopen trophy hunting, and, and all that goes back to uh, the 2014 ban on elephant hunting. Uh, they're reopening it, but here's the deal. 700 trophy hunters going to Botswana every year isn't going to put a dent in their problem and their population. So how do you see this playing out? I mean, what is the proper course of action to help the Botswanans out as they're just getting their rear ends handed to them, their crops are being devastated, and uh, and elephants are even killing people at this point? So, Cable, that's a great question. I think I, I'm going to be very, very, very clear here. 
sustainable trophy hunting is not a population control mechanism. Mm -hmm. and, and I say that really strongly. It is not. Because sustainable trophy hunting is taking older bulls that are past breeding and small enough numbers that the reason it's got the word sustainable on it is you do not want it to lead to a reduction in population. It's not a population management tool. It's a, a finance generating tool. And so as much as we argue that sustainably harvesting buffalo or kudu or impala from a hunting perspective in an area maintains the population because we're only taking old bulls, the same argument holds true for elephant. And so we cannot confuse the, 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 the management of population with the conversation about whether or not we should be trophy hunting. Sure. Now, trophy hunting generates meat and it generates money for communities that don't have either. And that is a very, very good thing. But it does not eliminate human-wildlife conflict. It does not reduce population. And right. So how are we going to get that, past that? You know, that 700 to make a like? Would you agree that they're way over their carrying capacity in Botswana? Absolutely. So at the moment, at the last last legitimate full count, which was a couple of three years ago, they were at 207,000 animals um, in in Botswana. Now, quite a few of those are transient. They do move into Zimbabwe, they move into Angola, but nevertheless, at the time of counting, there were 207,000, which is probably over 100,000 too many cable. And mm -hmm. so the reality is, and this is something that, again, is probably for a whole nother, another segment, but the reality is the, the use of trophy hunting as a, as a tool to manage the population is asinine because in order to manage that population, a segment of that population needs to be eliminated. There is no way it would be a complete disaster taking trophy hunters and trying to get them to kill 100,000 animals. That, right. that just absolutely is, that's a non-starting conversation. The way that the, so when you look again, we need to look at elephants as a resource and because of their incredible intelligence and the fact that they're a charismatic animal, and the fact that there are parts of Africa where the elephants have, have, have gone extinct and are on the brink of extinction, it becomes a very hard conversation to explain to an anti-hunter or an anti-resource use person that elephants are a resource and we need to figure out how to utilize them. Most of the areas that have seen elephants go extinct or that have seen elephants go into serious decline the reasons for that decline have not been eliminated, which means that as we stand today, whether it's Botswana, whether it's Kruger, whether it's parts of Zimbabwe, there is absolutely a large excess of elephant. Hmm. But there is not an excess of, of ecosystems and habitats in Africa to send them to. We don't have a vacuum anywhere where we could say, okay, well, let's take 50,000 elephants out of Botswana, even if we had the money for it, and put them in Angola, or put them in, in Niger, or put them in, in Nigeria, or put them in Kenya. That, 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 first of all, the financial proposition is, is way too much. But secondly, there, there, there isn't the ecosystems that could handle them. So what, you're, what it sounds like you're saying, Ivan, is there needs to be a huge call of these elephants, and that's really the only way. <laughs> it's the only way that it's going to 
become a situation where they are not hurting our earth and and um you know in in having where we're having these increased instances of of human wildlife conflict because trophy hunting like you said isn't going to do a damn thing for it no and, and and i think cable here's a very interesting thing and again it's got to be couched very very carefully in order for it to get accepted but we can all if you look there's a very interesting um you know uh, some some interesting statistics on population growth and on on um on survivability of humans around the world um and and one of the things that we know is africa has the fastest growing human population and the highest proportion of humans below the poverty line of anywhere in the world if our proposition is to take is to take overpopulated wild wild resources and utilize them to feed people and if that campaign is carefully propagated in a way that the focus is on the mother with eight kids trying to feed them not on the charismatic intelligent animal that becomes that food mm-hmm. i think that you have a sustainable proposition there's only one problem with it it makes too much sense for people to agree with it <laughs> right. and in today's world when it comes to wildlife if it makes too much sense no one's going to agree and i and I, i i say that jokingly cable but in reality if you were to be able to utilize sustainably utilize three or four thousand elephants worth a year of protein and and byproducts use the money that was created by that to distribute it and you take these 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 populations that today are surviving on bushmeat poaching and you start to distribute very very cheap protein into those communities you will do two or three things one you'll bring back the elephant population to where it's it's not destroying its own environment and doesn't run the risk of of actually destroying itself. Mm-hmm. Number two, you're going to take these giant communities of people and take them off the bushmeat circle which saves untold numbers of wild species. And number three, you have a sustainable use model where you you it can be tax generating, it can be a business model with with quotas and and people with contracts to carry this out professionally and so on and so on down the road. Mm-hmm. It's a strange thing that we all accept taking a cow we take away the wildlife so that we can make land for cows then we grow these cows and we eat them. Why wouldn't we just eat the wildlife and put value on the wildlife instead of value on the cattle? And so really when you look at it if we look at elephants as just giant cows we already know where they breed very well we've already got a critical mass population why would we not look at that as an exceptionally good resource and a, a means of eliminating bushmeat in that whole region well and when you compare third world situation to what like just say what we do here in texas like okay you got a 2000 acre um lease or maybe you own it and you have to take 30 does off of there every year well then you yep. go in there with uh 18 wheeler refrigerated 18 wheeler and you shoot your 30 does you load them up you take them to the processor and a large part of that goes to hunters for the hungry and uh yep. you know we do the same thing here um but the message is like the delivery is a lot different you know like you said how do we craft well, it Well also a where... deer a deer doesn't have the charismatic um effect of an elephant um and and people people and I think what it comes down to cable is that the elephant conversation as i say it's probably for a whole another another segment but mm-hmm. the elephant conversation is complicated because there truly are areas of africa where elephants are extinct 
There truly are areas of Africa where elephants are in trouble. And there truly are, if you look at the overall statistics and you take just Africa as a whole, elephants truly are at an all-time low. Hmm. The problem is, and where it becomes difficult to understand, is these three or four areas of Africa where they truly are overpopulated require a different conversation to other parts of Africa. And it's very hard to take the city-dwelling average person and make them understand because all of these NGOs that are making money out of elephant protection have been for 20 or 30 years telling the world that elephants are in trouble. And they truly are in trouble in certain areas. Mm -hmm. And so now when you come up with a prospect of harvesting them and utilizing them as a resource, everyone throws up their hands and say, we can't do that, they're in trouble. And people just don't understand the elephant, the, the elephant debate. And I think that it's, uh, it, it's something that we could probably dedicate a, a, a very interesting segment to because it's a lot more complex than we can get into in, in kind of a 10-minute chat. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll wrap things up with this. The, like you said, these NGOs and, and the mindset that they're proliferating amongst the public. Um, so I posted a video of the, the rhino bite a dart. And somebody said, and this apparently is a hunter. They follow my page. They said, "How are you darting a rhino? I thought they were extinct." Like, <laughs> I mean, how does that even how is that even possible? How do people come up with that? You know? Well, well, here's what ended up happening: is the in July 2018, the last northern white rhino died. Mm -hmm. So that particular species is absolutely extinct. And for the uneducated public. They read that, they're horrified by it, and in their mind, okay, rhinos have gone extinct. And it's no different to the giraffe conversation, which comes up time and time again. In southern Africa, the southern giraffe or, or, or the, the South African and Angolan giraffe are, are prolific. They're highly prolific. Mm -hmm. However, you go further north in Africa, there's seven different countries where they've gone extinct. And so... A to the average general public, a giraffe is a giraffe. They don't look at subspecies. They don't look at regions. They, it's just a giraffe. And so when they see a photo online of some little girl posing next to a dead giraffe, they think they've killed one of the last eight giraffes. Right. However, you get to Niger, and Dallas Safari Club actually helped us move eight giraffe into an ecosystem where they were, they were formerly extinct. And so Absolutely. Eight giraffe in Niger is a very different conversation to eight giraffe in Kruger National Park or in Namibia. Yeah. It's a completely different conversation. And the general public doesn't know that cable. And so, you know, that's where I'm so appreciative of the great platform you give us as conservationists to tell these truths and, and propagate these truths where, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just amazing the topics that you, you, you get it's amazing your platform and you being so generous with us to be able to have these conversations because I think without these conversations, you know, we, we're all hunting 13 line ground squirrels in the backyard because everything else is gone, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Man. Well, Ivan, you know what? I always enjoy the conversations because uh, not only am I passionate about it, but I learn something every time we sit down and do this, uh, something that I hadn't previously thought about. You know, I thought about a situation, but I didn't think of it like this and, and and the reason why is because you're on the ground, you're living it, breathing it, doing it every day, and uh, and and I'm grateful for that, my friend. So uh, truly, it is a two-way street, and I look forward to our next visit. Fantastic, I really appreciate it, and um, thank you so much for following my social media platforms. And um, yeah, we've just one exciting thing we've just done is we've started a virtual shop where people can go cable and buy 
$10 worth of motorcycle fuel for an anti-poaching team. And, and that money gets to that team. It, it gets to fund stuff that that team's doing. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love you to check that out and, and see. Where can folks do that? It's ivancarterwca.org. Have a look at that that web shop. And I think that um, it's a great way for people to feel like they're fully engaged with what we're doing on the front line, you know. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's that's wonderful. So people can check that out and uh, have an impact directly, which is very cool. So, well, Ivan, I appreciate it, my friend. Safe travels, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Fantastic. I appreciate you, Cable. Have a fantastic day, and, and all good in conservation. All right. You do the same. Thank you so much. All right, there he goes, our good friend and someone who I respect the hell out of. Uh, he's doing great work for conservation across the board. Ivan Carter, uh, that segment of the show, by the way, was proudly brought to you by Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue and Lone Star beer. Uh, unfortunately, we got to go. Got to get out of here. We are flat out of time. Thanks to our only guest today, of course, Ivan. Uh, thanks to you guys and gals for being a part of today's presentation. Always a pleasure. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great day in the outdoors. Stages, a fire burning in my soul. I had those nights where my guitar was raging. It's not something you control.